0: Uh, <clears throat> if you have a Bible, if you could open up to Genesis chapter 2, and uh, I'm just seeing the Osbournes over there, and uh, wow, hello, it's so good to see you guys, it, it feels like you never left seeing you sit over there, I'm so happy to have you guys here. Um, so before we uh, get into the Word today, I just wanted to share uh, something that's going to be happening in the life of the body here soon. Um, we are going to begin um, having membership. Um, <clears throat> it's been a little bit of a confusing process, and I want to walk you through what we've talked through and where we've landed so you understand what we're doing. Um, you had two churches come together, and there were members of one church, members of another church, and and we we really, like, We sought the Lord, and when I say we sought the Lord, I I don't think I've sought the Lord on something this fervently, um, maybe even ever, because I was like, this is so confusing. What do you do about this? Um, do, Do you just grandfather people in? But then you had people coming in from other churches, and it's like, where do you cut the line off? When do you say, like, these people are grandfathered in, But uh, you know what? We're going to cut the line at uh, Russ Mills. You've you've got to start. Like there's there's no right way to do that. Um, So we figured um, I wanted to make membership what I see in Scripture. I hear the word membership covenant thrown around um, way too loosely. I don't see it in the New Testament. Um, What I do see is there's an understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So um, we're going to be walking people through a discipleship agreement is what we call it. Um, And um, that's going to be what membership is. And that's going to be for everybody so that we all go through it once. Nobody's going to get grandfathered in. And what we try, we're not, we don't want to lay labors on people that are not in scripture this discipleship agreement we try to just say what is the irreducible complexity of what it means to be a christian just boil it down to these are the basic things that it means to say yes i am a disciple of jesus christ and being a member here is um, going to aid me in my discipleship and my walk with jesus christ and we didn't want it to be anything more than that We wanted to make it, if you could be a member of God's family, you should be able to be a member of this family. So in March, we're going to be starting that. We'll give you exact dates starting next week, but um, I'm really excited. We've been working on this for three years, and it's finally time to start to roll that out. So please give us grace in the process, because... I've never merged two churches together before, and um, done membership, so this is new, and uh, I ask for grace in that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the scriptures. God, I, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to get into your word. I ask that you would magnify Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help me get out of the way, and that Jesus would shine. Lord, hide me behind your cross. I pray that the words would be yours, oh God, and I pray that you would, touch hearts. And Lord, as we look at this passage on the institution of marriage, I pray that you would heal broken marriages today, Lord, that you would strengthen marriages, and that you would continue to uphold strong marriages for the singles in our body, Lord. I pray that you would um, just touch their hearts, Lord, as as they yearn for companionship, Lord. I pray that you would help them to do it within a biblical framework, and that this morning would help them to that end, In Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't feel the need to do a whole lot of intro here, um, but uh, as we dive into our text, I want you to remember two things. And I know I keep saying this each message, but uh, I think that this is important in Genesis because, like I've told you, Genesis is taught wrong probably more than any book in the Bible aside from maybe Revelation. Um, People just butcher this book. Um, they turn it into a storybook about heroes and um, that's not what it's about. The Bible has one hero. His name is Jesus and this entire book points to him. So, so um, the first thing I want to remember is this was spoken to an original audience for a specific reason because God wanted them to glean something of worth out of this narrative. So we need to ask, what is he trying to express? And I know that I keep asking that each week, but I want you to understand the importance of interpreting the message as given to the original audience, because in failing to do so, we come up with some bizarre interpretations that are contrary to the word of God as intended. So let me give you an example. There's no perfect example because there's nothing that you can compare to the perfect inspired word of God. Um, but how many of you out there own a cat? All right, that's way too many. But um, <laughs> Do you know that there was actually a law um, throughout Europe in the 13th century, during the Black Plague, where people thought that the reason behind the plague is that cats were evil. and um, give me an amen if you can get behind that. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> hallelujah. So, so there was actually this law that they were to kill any cat that they see because they thought that cats, were actually what caused the Black Plague that went through Europe. It's where we get the superstition about black cats. Um, if you've ever seen Monty Python, um, there's multiple scenes where you see this lady in the background. It's, it's funny. It's never in the forefront. It's always in the background, and she's beating a cat against the wall, and you hear, row, row, and I've always wondered about that. I was like, that's so random. But Monty Python's kind of like that, right? They always have Monty... But... They're sharp guys, and they put stuff in there because it actually had some historical context. So, when you saw that lady beating cats against the wall, and they're saying, Bring out your dead, bring out your dead, that's because that's what would actually happen. Um, that was a true. Uh, and now, the irony of it is that we now have good evidence, looking back on it historically, that. that Mice were what caused the, um, the plague. And so they spent their time killing the natural predator of the thing. <laughs> it was killing them. <laughs> so um, science. Um, but I, I, I bring that up uh, because if you just read that today and people started going out and, and murdering pet Fluffy... You'd be locked up. You'd be looked at as insane. Um, If you saw somebody just beating a cat against the wall, um, you'd you'd call the cops. Uh, But you say, "Oh, but but I picked up this book from the 1300s, and it told me to do so." Um, Now that illustration's silly, obviously. Uh, the law it was not scripture, and it's not, it was born out of superstition and error, and scripture has none of these. But what it, where it does make sense is that you need to remember why something was written to the original audience. So when we look at this text and when we start to look about God's design for marriage, keep in mind, monogamy was radical at this time. As he starts to share to this group of marauders in the desert, remember, that's when it's being written, in about 1400 BC. You have these people that had just come out of this polytheistic culture. In Egypt, this culture where people, men had many, many wives—if you ever notice, that usually works that way. It's n- usually never the women have many, many husbands. It's always the men have many, many wives. Um, and they're coming into this land, and God is saying, "No, I'm going I'm to share with you the institution of marriage. And this could be holy, and you're going to have one spouse, and it's going to be—they're going to be part of you forever." This is radical to them. You know what? That's it's still radical, believe it. It shouldn't be. We've been standing on 2,000 years of Christian history, and that's still radical. That's maybe even increasingly radical in our society today, and I'll get into that. The second thing I want you to remember is that they're still in paradise at this time, and I say that because it is mentally impossible to imagine a world that truly is not marred by sin. You can't do it because you're. you know why you can't do it? because you're marred by sin. So you can't imagine a world that was absolutely perfect, but they're in the middle of something that was as beautiful as beautiful could be, and that's when God creates this institution of marriage. So I want you to use your imagination and forget all about the garbage that TV tells you what marriage is. We're not talking about Al Bundy and Homer Simpson here guys. We're talking about biblical manhood, biblical womanhood coming together for biblical marriage. Uh, I want you to forget all the garbage that the government thinks that they have the right to define what marriage is because the government does not have the right to go against what God has ordained. So forget that garbage. And even more personal, those of you who come from broken homes, broken marriages and have just been hurt by broken marriages I want you to look at the loving gracious Creator God and what he created to be beautiful for you so our text begins with the Sabbath which we hit on two weeks ago in the last day of creation and what we see in chapter 2 is that Adam has dominion Over all things, this is something that you can't miss out on. This this whole passage begins with this idea of dominion. So we go from God creating the earth to the story of man having dominion over what he created. It's so it's so funny because even as I I was preparing. To study this book, people were asking me, what are you going to do with the discrepancies of the creation narratives of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? Um, When you ask that question, you're missing the point. And I've said, going back to the beginning, um, you need to pick up on these things like the original readers would, and the original readers would not have been asking, hey, what about this discrepancy between chapter one and chapter two? Um, Some of our biggest debates come about because people just lack common sense. Um, The difference between chapter one and chapter two, uh, well, I'll get into it in a little bit more, but man, people just love to debate stuff. They love to debate things that don't need debating. Do you remember a couple years ago, the Gate scandal? We literally commissioned NASA scientists to come in and check the PSI of footballs that Tom Brady was throwing uh, to be able to see if NASA could prove if it gave Tom Brady a competitive edge. And we spent Tens of millions of dollars in litigation for years. And I don't even remember what the answer was. And I don't care, even if I knew. We arrived at nothing, and it was meaningless. It was like when we studied through Ecclesiastes. It was Havel. It was chasing after the wind. and Nowhere along the line did somebody have the intelligence to say, there are people dying of starvation in our own country, yet we have millions of dollars to commission NASA scientists to study the air pressure inside of footballs. And that's how I feel when people start to debate the supposed discrepancies between Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Is the story presented a little bit differently between the chapters? Yes. Does it present an issue in the text? Absolutely not. I'm going to prove that to you today. So chapter 1 was what we call a theocentric story, of the glorious God showing off his splendor in creation. That's what chapter one was. It was God saying, look at me. I'm here. This is a story about me. As you open the book, I'm the main character. The whole book is about me. That was chapter one. And then chapter two, he retells it from the perspective of putting his crown jewel of creation his very image bearer in the midst of that creation. And chapter 2 is about what creation was like from the standpoint of his image bearer being in that garden. And he was called the steward of that creation. There's no discrepancy. There's just two different goals in telling the same stories. He wanted to present the creation of mankind. Mankind. Mankind the only one whom he's ever referred to as the apple of his eye. Brothers and sisters, think about that today. God calls you the apple of his eye. That's that's, that's amazing. I don't feel like the apple of his eye, but God sees me that way. The only creatures that can bear the name Amago Dei the image of God. You are God's image bearers. The only ones of his creation that he would someday become one of to be able to show how much he loved. He didn't become any other part of his creation. He became one of you to show you how much he loves you. God loves you. The only one that he was willing to to lay down his life for. Think about that for a second. He sees you as different, distinct, and valuable. So he retells the story so he can show you just how much value you have in his story. And I think that's awesome. And I hope you think that's awesome too. And he takes this precious new created image bearer and he gives him stewardship. Over his whole creation. Think about that, man. That is like handing a toddler the keys to a Ferrari. Um, Look with me at verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2. God bless you. Um, Excuse me. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden. To work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of the tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember that they don't have a concept of die. There's never been die before. Um, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. He gave man the opportunity to name them, to have dominion over them, and whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds in the heavens, to every beast of the field. But to Adam, there was not a helper found for him and I'll go back into that later on But he takes this precious creation and he gives the image bearer stewardship over all of that creation I want you to think about that remember when you were 17 and your pops gave you the keys to the car for the first time and let you drive Um, dad you'll probably remember this We are living in Evergreen Woods over in Brick. And I just got my permit. Very first move I did was not understanding the turning radius when you're backing out. And my very first time driving a car, I went (laughs) and just nailed it into the neighbor's car next to me. Which was for sale. (laughs) And I ended up buying it at a very reduced cost because it had a huge dent in the side. (laughs) Well, (laughs) this is the father giving the keys to the car to Adam and saying, see, go explore. You have this whole world in front of you. You drive. And it ends up very much like my first driving experience It ends up being a total wreck. And you even see foreshadowing of that in verse 17, right? He's telling him all this good news, every piece of news from chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way to verse 16 has been very good news. And in verse 17, he's saying, but there's one thing, my son, there's a tree, do not eat of this. This is off limits. We're going to get a lot into that in chapter three. So I'm not going to hit on that much. But the point is the whole world was God's and God decided to give it to Adam and make him stewards of it. And a little tangent, some early application points. I know I usually wait until the end for application, but he still does this. He has given you so many things into your stewardship. I was just trying to think through all of the things that he has given me to be steward of as I was preparing for this week. And he, he do you know that we would look like kings to previous generations? We would look like kings, our, our poor would be kings to previous generations. We have things, simple things like your feces goes down a hole and goes away when you hit a little knob. That's huge, man! That was a big problem! You turn a spigot and water comes out. There's still places in the world that they don't have that. We've been given so much that we have been made stewards of. And we need to wrap our heads around the fact that nothing that you have is yours. You're a steward of it. That's it. You're a steward of it. And how you care for what God has entrusted into your hands is very important. We can get on Adam all we want. I've always thought, like... Um, Man, when I see Adam in heaven, I just want to give him a gut punch for getting us into this mess. But how many of us have been stewards with resources that we could sow into eternal rewards and have squandered them just like Adam has? Every single one of us is the answer. Our hearts are not all that different. God gives to each 20, 10, 20, 100 talents and it's how you invest them. And by and large, people choose to invest what God has given them the steward on themselves. Look, I'm not one to usually make strong remarks about tithing because I've never wanted to be that guy where it's like, let me just shake people down. Um, but you know what? I don't even feel like I need to say it. If I need to say that at this point, then that's just goofy. I should have earned your trust by now because I've never done it. <clears throat> but I do want to just hit you with some cold, hard facts It's embarrassing the size of this church that we're tight on money. Um, it's embarrassing if if you look at the numbers like we should have we should be able to take a situation like when we have a sick family in the church and we should be able to just dump money and love into their laps because we should have storehouses here. It's embarrassing that we're struggling to pay the bills. This place is usually packed out. And we, we it should not be tight here. You know the average American Christian tithes 2.3 percent. Brothers and sisters, nothing that you have is yours. It's all stewardship. So, I want to take the general we out of the equation and just call it how it is. We have been called to subdue and to bless and to multiply. And on average, we could use some encouragement to maybe consider eternal rewards a little bit more than building the kingdom here. Amen? Is that, is that fair? I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't think that I went off the rails with those comments, right? Those are, um, Debbie, you do the bills. Um, is, that, is that fair? Give me a thumbs up. Okay. So don't miss the importance um, also uh, of what it was that Adam was called to have dominion over. It's critical. There's two parts to the Bible. The Bible breaks down very unevenly into two parts. There's the part where we lived in paradise and had full dominion. We were created to walk with God and live in paradise. And then there's everything else. After that, which we're going to look in great detail after chapter 3. And this is what we gave up through sin. If you've ever read Milton's Paradise Lost, this is what it's all about. He had paradise. He had complete dominion over all things. And again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, um, but this truly points to what Romans calls the second Adam who truly has dominion over all things. But that's next week. Yet even with full dominion, he lacked something important, companionship. Look at verse 20. It says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper that was fit for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed in his place with flesh and the rib, the Lord. I'm sorry, I memorized this in the New American Standard, and now I'm just like, you ever do that? You memorize it in a different translate, and then, um, and the rib that the Lord caused uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man, and I'll get more into that in a moment. So dominion didn't quite cut it for Adam. He wanted a partner. Ruling and reigning was not enough. He said, I I want a partner to do this with. We are created to crave companionship. This is a good and natural desire. It's a desire that the enemy has been so masterful at corrupting and turning into something contrary to God's design in this passage. But the evidence is right here that we were designed to crave companionship. And since this passage has a lot to say about marriage, let me take a moment to speak to the single people in our congregation because um, often they can be overlooked in passages like this. Your yearning for companionship is a natural desire. Singles, look look at me in the eyes. I want you to hear that. Your yearning for companionship is a natural desire desire. It's a good desire. But please, please, I'm begging you, don't settle for cheap substitutes. Every single person in 15 years of being a pastor, every single person I've seen settle for a cheap substitute, it has affected their walk with Jesus. Everyone, no exceptions, every single time The burning desire for companionship is not going to be met by going outside of God's design. It can look appealing, but it's a mirage. It's going to leave you empty. I know that it's tough when you have this yearning for companionship, and it seems like your prince will never come. But I beg of you, wait on the Lord. Don't cut corners. Please, please. For the sake of the rest of your life, I'm begging you, don't cut corners. Do not give your heart to somebody who has not given their heart to Jesus first. I remember telling Marcy when I met her, uh, we were dating and it was like, you know, when you're first dating and like everything's an anniversary, it's like, oh, it's the three week anniversary of our first text message. Um, I, I bought her this gold dove pen, and she still brings this up because I said, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in the world, and the reason you are so beautiful is, well, first you're just a hottie, but um, the Holy Spirit in you is just so attractive. My spirit testifies to his spirit. It testifies to your spirit, and there's something just metaphysical going on Here And she still rocks that pen. Um, Don't give your heart to somebody who hasn't given their heart to Jesus first. Do you know what I love about my wife the most? She loves Jesus more than me. That's the only way it works, man. It's the only way it works. And when it works according to God's design, it's beautiful. Please don't cut corners. And before I move on, let me point this out. This does point to Christ, who unlike Adam was not feeling any sense of lack in his total perfection that he had within the triune Godhead. But he loved you so much that he wanted you to be his partners. And that's why the church is called his bride. And like the first Adam, companionship could only come from the wound from his side that came when he slept for three days. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam is the perfect companion that will never disappoint you. So God created what perfect companionship was supposed to look like. Look at verses 21 through 24 again. He says, so the Lord caused the deep sleep to come on him. And I'm going to skip down to 23 because I read the previous verses. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And I told you two weeks ago, when you see scripture deviate from a pattern, take notice because it's always important. All of creation had very similar language in chapter one until it gets to the creation of man, and then the language begins to deviate. In chapter 2, all of creation has very similar language until it gets to the creation of woman. And it's doing something beautiful. God is doing something beautiful here. He did not create Eve ex nihilo like he created everything else. Ex nihilo is what the theologians call, it means, it's Latin for out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. But Eve, he didn't do that. So you take notice and you say, why? why did you do this differently God he created her out of part of Adam because she's not like any other part of creation sisters hear me you're not like any other part of creation you are unique you are beautiful the reason that she created her out of Adam is because she is literally part of him so this is one of the reasons that marriage is so sacred. The person is literally a part of you. If you are married and your spouse is with you, I never do stuff like this because I hate it when people do it to me, but I, I've got, I'm standing here and I don't have, to have, I don't have to do it. So I'm gonna ask you to, um, if you're sitting next to your spouse, I want you to squeeze their hand right now. Do it, do it, do it! <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, No, I'm not kidding about doing it, but I'm not not really mad. I want you to squeeze their hand, and I want you to look them in the eye and remind them that they are literally part of you. And I love the next statement. It says, God brought her to the man. How cool is that? If you're here and you found that love, it's because God brought that person to to you so again I'm going to make you do something uncomfortable turn to that person if they're with you grab their hand look them in the eye and say God brought you to me do it (laughs) and if you're single let this be your dating manual let God bring that person to you please don't cut corners Don't cut corners. And before we begin to get into what God says about marriage, there's a lot here. I want you to take notice of where this falls in God's story because it's really, really, really important. Marriage was brought into existence before sin ever entered into the world. Therefore, it remains a perfect uh, illustration of the covenant between God and man because God enacted it before sin even came in. So it still remains the purest illustration of the gospel that we have on earth. It's something that Christians, hear me on this, it's something that Christians should fight to uphold the dignity of. Stop being backed into the corner by people just because they shout louder than you. Just because they're meaner than you on Facebook just because they're willing to spew their unbiblical agenda. Do not allow people to redefine marriage when marriage was defined by God perfectly and never needed to be redefined. All they're trying to do is redefine something so that they can find comfort for their sin-filled hearts. And it will not give them that comfort. It will not give them What they're looking for. Man, and don't feel like you have to accept the unacceptable just because the wicked are louder than you are. Being loud doesn't make you right. Fight to uphold marriage the way that God defined it. And let me just say this before moving on. The best way to fight for God's design in marriage is to demonstrate to the world what a Christian marriage is supposed to look like. John Piper once said that people always give the statistic that the divorce rate in the church is the same as in the world. And he said, I will tell you this, that the divorce rate between two people who are mutually submitted to Christ and mutually submitted to his word and mutually submitted to one another is zero. Zero percent. Fight to uphold that. And the best way to uphold it is to demonstrate it. And when I say fight, I don't mean bash or insult people. I simply mean stand your ground. You've got this book where God defined it. Stand your ground. Christians have given up so much ground that's not yours to give up. God didn't give us this so that we could give up the ground. Stand your ground. It's worth it. The covenant of marriage is something that we should understand that God takes as really, really important. So if it's important to God, it should be important to us. God does not believe in prenups. I was reading this week uh, just the stupidest articles. Should Christians believe in prenups? No, there's no escape clause in a Christian marriage. So I'm about to close. I want to give you eight principles that we see on marriage from the garden. And we've got these up behind me. First, God decreed that it is not good that we should be alone. That's a good thing. Number two, God was already working on the perfect helpmate before Adam knew that he needed one. So Adam doesn't even express... We see in verse 18... He expresses the need. And in verse 20, God begins to meet that. Number three, it was God who brought Adam his helpmate. Number four, God created that helpmate out of Adam's side. She was literally a part of Adam and was supposed to complete him. Number five, God continued a pattern that we see in the animal kingdom and reinforced even in the Noah narrative of male and female coming together. Look, I'm just going to be as clear and concise on this as I possibly can. Marriage is between one man and one woman until death do us part, period. No exceptions. Anything other than that is not marriage in God's sight. But let me give you a plea. Please do not reduce this to condescending phrases like I've heard every time stuff like this is preached on. Hey, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And everybody thinks that they're the first one to come up with that joke. And it's condescending, man. I have a huge heart for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. They need Jesus just like you do they don't need to be made fun of, just like you don't want to be made fun of. Sometimes when I hear the way that Christians talk about those who struggle with homosexuality, it makes me cringe. We would never make fun of another sin like that. You wouldn't take somebody that's struggling with pornography and say, it says they we're supposed to be born again, not porn again. That was pretty good. I just made that one out of it. But you wouldn't do that, right? Uh, um... So the way that their eyes is open is the same way that your eyes are going to be open, by the grace of God. Be a people of truth, but be kind. Be a people of grace. Number six, Adam realized right away that this helpmate was special amongst all creation. He's like, whoa, check out this hottie. Yo, he was smitten. Be smitten with each other. There's nothing more beautiful than when I see people in their old age married and still deeply in love with one another. It, it, it gives me hope. It fills me with just something that I, I can't be filled with anywhere else. I, I look at the other elders on our, on our team, um, the West the Pauls, the Bowditches, and I see their marriages that, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to call you all old, but you've been married like as long as I've been alive. And you guys are so in love. This was supposed to be a compliment, and, and I'm butchering it. But the way you love each other gives me hope. Number seven, there would be a leaving and cleaving for one another. There's three commands in this text. Leave, cleave, and become one. So first, leave. This is the biggest area. It, when I do premarital counsel, I I know I'm going a little bit long today, but I, I don't care. If you got somewhere to be, then I can do what you got to do. But I'm going to stay in this text. Um, this commandment to leave is one of the biggest areas that I have to hit on when I do premarital counsel. If you've done premarital counsel with me, there's some of you in this room that have. Um, You know that I hit on this so hard. We live in a time where it's hard to find men who are actually men. I call it the Peter Pan syndrome. We live in a world of chick Nancy Pances. (laughs) Nancy Pantses. It's time to change, man. I look at men like from my grandfather's generation. I say, those were men. Those were men that knew how to get dirty. Those were men who knew how to work. Those were men who expected to work. Those were men who fought for their marriages. Those were men who stayed together with their spouses. We need a generation of men. Get out of your mother's basement. You can't honor the commandment to leave if you are a mama's boy. Hear me on that. Brothers, you're not marrying your mom. There is a commandment to leave and to form a new generation, new traditions. That doesn't mean you disrespect the family you came from. That doesn't mean that uh, doesn't mean that you don't take on traditions from the family that you came from. It doesn't mean you do not honor them. But you're marrying somebody and you're becoming one with them. So don't bring your folks into your marriage bed because that's weird. The second commandment is cleave. You know what cleave means? It means clinging together so tight that light can't even get between you. I remember this one time I took Calvin to the beach and the waves were particularly rough and he actually got sucked out on the undertow. Um, It was very expensive for me. I had my iPhone and and my glasses on and I had to dive in and grab them. He clung to me so tight that I had nail marks in me. And he was shaking. This is how he clung to. Me. This is what cleave means. It means you hold to each other so tight that nothing can get between you. Light can't even get between you. That's what not finances, not lust not bitterness, not the argument that, oh, I let you win last time, it's my turn to win this time, and stupid stuff like that, nothing. That's what cleaving means. Brothers and sisters cleave to one another. I was listening to, um, as I was getting ready, I was listening to those great theologians, Led Zeppelin, um, this morning, and I was listening to the song, Thank You, off of Zeppelin II. If the sun refused to shine... I would still be loving you. When mountains crumble to the sea, there would still be you and me. That's what it means to cleave. And then the final part of the commandment is become one, meaning continually moving toward one another. And then as you're moving towards one another, you're moving towards Jesus. So you're moving towards one another. And then as one, you're moving towards Christ Together and Christ becomes the center of your marriage. The chapter includes some precursors of the things to come. It talks about how they were naked and unashamed. Um, it's not about the nudity, it's pointing out how beautiful it is to feel unashamed. You who are walking in shame, you know that the gospel is the remedy for that. You don't have to walk in shame any longer. Christ is the perfect husband who has bore your shame on the cross. Bore it completely. And if you take that gift, he bears it so that you bear it no more. It is well with your soul. So some application from the covenant of the institution of marriage. Treasure God's design. Number two, true love takes sacrifice. God took something out of Adam to make Eve. Eve. God took everything out of his son to make you his child. If you have not effectively left, then leave, number three. Number four, cleave. Let nothing come between you. Number five, if you're single, marinate on those words. The Lord brought the woman to the man. Don't take shortcuts. Wait on the Lord. It's worth it. He's worth it. Number six, stand up for the institution of marriage. Don't let culture dictate to you what marriage is supposed to be. Let the Bible define it. Number seven, demonstrate God's design by loving your spouse with a supernatural love, a love that takes the Holy Ghost. Number eight, be in love with your spouse. If there's an application, you want an easy application, don't just love them. When you leave here today... You can even do it now. Turn to him and say, I am in love with you. I'm infatuated with you. I I still go crazy just holding your hand. Just the touch of you just warms my heart after all these years. And number nine, be in love with Jesus, and then all of these things come into perspective. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your perfect design. Though we are imperfect, Lord, you have so much grace with us. I pray that we would live according to that design and let you allow allow you to shape and mold us to become one with the one that we're to be with and to be one with you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move on to this time of communion, we're talking about becoming one. Leave, cleave, become. Jesus Christ left his throne and left the side of the Father. He cleaved to humanity during the incarnation where he took on flesh so that he could be broken. And that's what the cracker represents is his cleaving to humanity and being man very man that was broken on your behalf and then he poured out his precious blood so that you could become one in him if you are his child today we invite you to come partake and enjoy and celebrate that you have become one with a God who is in love with you let me pray God thank you Thank you for this celebration of your love. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.